what a courtesy tap is, young man? Sounds like this. It's light. It's friendly. I'm sure that's what your mom meant to do. No, it's not. Mom! Having a kind of a hard time lately. I'm sorry. I need you to learn what a bad day really is. I need you to learn how to say you're sorry. And you're going to learn through violence and retribution. Mr. Crow, good afternoon from Las Vegas. How are you? Hey, man. How you doing? You all right? I'm doing good. I understand you're in the bush somewhere in Australia. I am. I'm in the Arara Valley. Um, uh, surrounded by trees and everything. But uh, we're actually sitting in a little studio I use for recording music. So we've got that facility to help in a situation like this. Uh, well, let's talk about Unhinged. Uh, your character is set off on a murderous rampage just because he didn't get a courtesy honk. And here in Las Vegas, it's 110 degrees today and we road rage is a way of life here, but we wouldn't even attempt a courtesy honk in that environment. Yeah, well, uh, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> The question is, it takes very little for your character to be set off. Well, the interesting thing about the way we set this tale up is we don't really know what has happened prior, you know. There are little hints and, and suggestions. But in the conversations we had prior to starting the film, you know, one of the important things for me was that the actions are not justifiable, you know. So if you stop to expositionally explain where this guy's coming from, in a way, you're trying to justify the actions. So for me, it was a matter of like, you know, this character can only launch if we both understand, you know, in terms of me and the director, Derek Bort, that there is no justification. There is no way of explaining this. It was like, like this is a, an individual decision that we've seen happen over and over again and becoming more prevalent in our society where, you know, for their own reasons, you know, people have become devoid of humanity and they make the decision to commit ultra violence on others. You know, and you've experienced that in, in your wonderful city, um, you know, with the unfortunate you know, mass shooting that you that you had there, you know, and that's really what this film sort of addresses. So I started to understand it as something beyond uh, merely a genre film and seeing it as something that's making a direct commentary on where we are in Western society. And I think one of the advantages of the movie is it all takes place in one morning and the audience doesn't have time to breathe. It just moves so fast. Well, you know, I think Derek, it's only his third feature film, but um, he's very definitely got, you know, a handle and understanding on the language of film, particularly when it comes to set pieces like uh, <laughs> car accidents. <laughs> Incredible <laughs> car accidents. I mean, the freeway and crashes were amazing. But, you know, he, he surrounded himself with, you know, what I call kind of film lifers, you know. Steve Danton, the first AD on the movie, you know, was the first AD on virtuosity, you know. And he's been in the business for a long time. The stunt crew on this man were like gold medal stunt dudes, you know what I mean? Guys that I've worked with multiple times or whatever, you know. And actually there was a number of coordinators from other films all working under one guy, you know, so it was, you know, the, you know, the cinema experience and skill level that brought to a movie of this size. It's a very small budget, man, on a very, very tight schedule, you know, and we were cracking through things, but the energy on set was so competent, you know what I mean? 
It was like a really easy, relaxed energy, which seems weird given the film was so fraught with tension, you know, but you sit together in the morning, you have a, you know, calm, quiet discussion. Oh, what are we doing today? Oh, this is when we did this with the school bus and the cement truck crushes the car and stuff. Oh, yeah, cool. You know, and everybody just gets about their business, you know? So, um, you know, it was a great environment on the set and that really always goes back to the director. This week, the 20th anniversary of Gladiator came out on 4K DVD. And I was wondering if you had a favorite memory from Gladiator. Man, there's a lot. You know, my favorite memories of Gladiator really now are about when I get together with, you know, cast members or sit with Ridley and pour him a martini and we, we laugh about the bullets that we dodged, you know. I mean, you know, we were under an extraordinary amount of pressure at the time and, you know, a lot of people wrote it off as a stupid idea. So it kind of, it, it felt like we really had something to prove, you know, deciding to do it. And, you know, Ridley sets an incredible world for actors. And, you know, as every cast member came along and they stepped into that world, they just bought into it, you know? So you have, you know, Richard Harris and Oliver Reed and Derek Jacobi and David Hemmings giving incredible performances and, you know, Jaiman Honsu and Tomasa Rana and Tommy Flanagan and Rolf Mueller, you know, and then you've got Connie Nielsen and then you've got Joaquin Phoenix creating the best bad guy in cinema history, you know? So it was, just, it was because everybody bought into it. Everybody knew that, you know, there was a lot of attention on it. You know, there was a lot of expectation of failure, you know, um, but it, it just, it wasn't that way at all. You know, we, on a daily basis, everybody tried to bring something special to it, you know, and, you know, it, it's kind of a bespoke movie in such a strange way because, you know, the one thing that Ridley had in place was a timeline of the schedule where he didn't have to make the decisions about the end of the movie until he got to the end of the movie. You know, that was the one sort of uh, saving grace because if we'd had a normal film schedule and we were jumping around from time point to time point, it probably wouldn't have had the same cohesion, you know, but because we could do something early in the film, like one example is Tommy Flanagan plays the Batman you know, uh, uh, of Maximus, you know, the man who's there to, you know, uh, do the officer's clothes, keep the officer's, you know, space tidy or whatever. He was a day player. He was on one day or two days, you know, but Ridley and I really liked Tommy and we really liked his energy and liked what he did in that moment and how he explains to Maximus what his responsibilities are. And we were both like, kid's good, right? Yeah, good, kid's good. So it was like, then let's try and find a way to bring him back into the story, you know? And, and eventually we, we, we did that, you know, and I think Tommy ended up being in Malta for weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, cause he'd done his original bit in England, you know, and then we finally worked out a way of how that character might come back, but that didn't shoot in Malta. But, you know, I think we flew him in and we were still sort of like developing the idea. So uh, I think he had a, you know, a fine summer in Malta while we worked it out, you know, but there's a thousand stories like that in that film. It's, it, it's, you know, so many things were just made up on the spot and so many things that happened were luck. But, you know, in film, you do make your own luck and, and Ridley has a way of almost controlling the elements so they go his way. Well, congratulations on Unhinged. And now that's wrapped, uh, I need a Nice Guy sequel. So hurry up and make it for me. Mate, I talk regularly to the producer, Joel Silver, about this and to the, the director. But uh, as yet... We shall see you in the future. Thank you so much, Russell. Stay safe and uh, come visit us in Las Vegas when you have a chance.
Good on you, mate. Stay safe.